Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. So, Becca, what are we looking at here? We are looking at the drivetrain of your bike. So, let's see. Let's start here. You've got the pedals. They're attached to the crank arm, which attaches to the chain ring, which moves the chain, which moves the back tire, which moves the bike. And all of that moves the rider. So, you were riding a bike at an all-day pace... Do you know what the ideal RPM, the the number of times you're going to spin the pedals in a minute? Do you know what that would be? Hmm. Uh, I guess it'd be somewhere, well, more than 60, but less than 100. Yeah. So if we were riding, I would guess that we'd probably be somewhere around 80 to 90 RPMs. Down at 60, your muscles don't work as efficiently a really good cyclist, someone who's worked at it, would be hitting at about 100 RPMs. That's a lot of revolutions on a single ride. If I'm on my road bike, that's about 5,000 an hour. Right. That's When you think about it, <laughs> I mean, what a boring thing. It's the exact same motion over and over, 80 times a minute. And it, it doesn't even seem like there's a lot of nuance, like... Like with climbing, say you're climbing a really difficult route or or even throwing a baseball. You think about those and it's kind of this puzzle that you're completing. How do you solve the sequence of moves? How do I get a little bit higher? Um, even with a baseball, it's how do I make a, a baseball dive into a curve? How do I throw a curveball? And there's all these incredible nuances in that motion. But pedaling less so. It's pretty straightforward for the most part. But Becca, would you say that riding bikes is boring? No, because I don't think about each turn of the pedal, each revolution. I think about the bike and where it's taking me and what I'm seeing. That's what's interesting about biking. 
the places you go, the people you're with. It's not about the individual pedal strokes, the individual revolution. It's, I mean, really, it's the sum of them. If someone asked me what I like doing with my time, I'd never say, I like spinning my feet in a circle tens of thousands times a day. I would say I like mountain biking. The act of riding a bike long distances through beautiful, rugged places. Right. And if you were to watch someone ride or shred down a trail their feet, you wouldn't even see each individual pedal stroke. you just think they're flying down the hill, right? So what about it when it's difficult? Like if you're pedaling up something really steep, do you think about each pedal stroke then? Oh, yeah. My muscles definitely start to feel each pedal stroke. I mean, I think about how I want to stop and then how I should really keep going and then how I want to stop. And isn't it fascinating? The exact same motion, the same one you've done a million times before. When it's easy, we don't notice the most mundane, boring, but elemental part of riding a bike. But when it's difficult, it's all we can think about. Are we really talking about bikes right now? Are you starting to talk about that question? What's the difference between a groove and a rut? (laughs) Maybe. So we both turned 40 recently. Um, The Diaries is about to hit 12 years old. Tep is turning seven. Wiley turned three this month. We are getting older, Um, but I, I still feel young. Those pedal strokes definitely blur together. Does it feel like a groove or a rut? (laughs) How about since this is your Dyer's episode, you answer that question. Fair enough. Groove or rut? You know, I'd answer that like this. Some days I believe wholeheartedly in what you and I are creating with our lives. I am so proud of it. The boys our work, what we've created together. Even when we're choosing the more difficult version of life, it it can feel kind of effortless to me. That belief feels easy. And other days I'm filled with doubt. Like it, it, it can be hard for me to get out of bed and I feel the spinning. I feel the routine and it hurts to even tell that to you because you're you're my partner and everything and I I feel doubt I feel doubt and I wish it wasn't that way I feel that way too I mean in different ways but I feel it thank you for saying that I want to tell a story about perspective a story about a simple idea of how to find it and 670 miles of single track through the Oregon forest what if you could hit pause on the day-to-day and find a little vantage point. What would life look like? A groove or a rut? I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In our 20s and early 30s, routine was never really Becca and I's thing. The only routine we seemed to adhere to was our seasonal shift in sports. In November, we would put away the climbing gear and tune the skis. In April, we swapped them back. We worked hard, that was the one thing that was constant, but on a day-to-day basis, one day of the week we might be up till 3 a.m. at a concert, 
and then the next day, waking up at 3 a.m. to climb and ski a volcano. At some point, a little while after Teb showed up, we realized that for our sanity's sake, we needed a little routine in our life. There was this thing called sleep, and he needed it. We needed it. And to do that, we needed more structure. We needed cadence. And while it felt weird at first, we embraced its rhythm and reminded one another jokingly that, hey, there's not that much difference between a groove and a rut. There are a lot of parts of our daily routine that I love. I love walking tap to school in the morning. It's awesome. My bike commute on sunny days, it's great. But there's one particular moment that I always look forward to. It's just before bed. Usually we've gotten a little exercise to keep sanity. We've read books to the boys, done the dishes, made lunches, grappled with the random life decisions that should be simple but take too much mental energy at 10 o'clock at night. All of this is behind us. And it's time for Becca and I to sit and talk. And this 45-minute window before bed, like I said, it's important and it's enjoyable. Becca and I work together. Our desks face each other. We raise our boys side by side. But on a certain level, this window is where we spend time together. It's where we laugh, reflect, remember, decompress, and dream. Five years ago, in a moment just like the one I described, we were remembering the longer trips we'd take every two years or so. Sometimes they were fun, sometimes they were difficult, sometimes both. But as we navigated our 20s and into our 30s, those trips served a greater purpose, one that neither of us realized at the time. Those trips gave us a chance for perspective and space, a chance to step outside the push and pull of daily life and look back and see the emotional topography of life. Between kids and the demands of the business we were building, it felt as if that window for that kind of trip, for that long trip, had closed. I can't remember who said it, but someone asked, does it have to be that way? We both knew the answer to that question. A sabbatical from the Hebrew word Sabbath, to rest from work. The first reference to the concept appears in the Bible. Who knew? In the modern sense of the word, it's a break in a career in order to achieve something outside the constraints of the day-to-day. Presumably, a sabbatical is an award for good leadership or good work that's bestowed on a person for excellence and acknowledgement that creativity requires space. Some universities and forward-thinking companies provide it up to a year. I am not very professorial, but I do own a company. So that night, sitting on the couch, we hatched a plan. For our 40th birthday, each of us would give the other a sabbatical. I would cover for Becca. The following year, she would cover for me. We had a few years before each of us hit the big 4-0, and we had some work to do to be able to responsibly check out for that amount of time. At that stage, we were still struggling to pay ourselves. Even taking vacation was difficult without something going haywire at work. We were still getting our feet underneath us as parents and professionals. The sabbatical didn't need to be productive. It didn't have to allow reflection or relaxation. It could just be whatever each of us wanted to do, what each of us needed, without the kids, without the responsibility of work. The next question was obvious. What was I going to do? The years passed. We had our second son, Wiley. 
At work, we began surrounding ourselves with amazing people who we could count on. We got better at being parents. We got better at being business owners. It began to feel conceivable that one of us could disappear for a month and not return home to find the other standing in a smoking pile of rubble in place of our house or business. Becca turned 40. She took a trip with friends riding mountain bikes between Telluride and Moab. She backpacked in the canyons of Bears Ears, a place she'd been working to defend from our office in Seattle. Her best friend, a professor whose research focuses on amphibians, called. She needed a field technician for 10 days of biological field work in Panama. Becca snapped at the opportunity to return to her old profession of wildlife biology. And so Tep, Wiley, and I dropped Mom off at the airport to go rumble down 4x4 roads in Panama's cloud forests, wade in jungle streams in the pitch black, and conduct frog surveys. Maybe even catch a glimpse of the endangered Panamanian golden frog. It didn't sound relaxing, but Becca returned beaming, and just in time for Tep's birthday. I still had to figure out what to do with myself. All right, welcome to Kyrgyzstan. We have arrived. I have got the rig all set up. It's super wobbly and heavy and weird. <laughs> but uh, about to go get lost in Bishkek, so here we go. This is my friend, Kyle Dempster. Kyle was awesome. He was the person who introduced me to the idea of bikepacking. In 2011, he took this crazy bike trip through Kyrgyzstan. He loaded a few scraps of climbing gear and pointed his bike up old Soviet roads into the heart of the country's incredible mountains and proceeded to solo a bunch of climbing routes. After he got back, we made a film about it called The Road from Caracol. After we finished the project, I promised myself I would take a bike trip like that. Maybe not in Kyrgyzstan or with the solo alpine climbing, but it just looked so fun and also kind of hard. Two years ago, Kyle and his climbing partner, Scott Adamson, disappeared on the Ogre 2, a menacing peak in Pakistan's Karakoram range. In the months following Kyle's death, I thought more about that bike trip. While I still love climbing, putting up roots deep in the wilderness no longer quite has the same pull to me. Maybe I was just tired of being afraid when I was on vacation. Maybe I had enough stress in my life. I also felt like I wanted to take a physical journey to begin in one place and end in another. Maybe it was time to hop on the bike and take that trip I'd been thinking about for years. So I thought about pedaling across the entire country on back roads, but my heart has always been in the woods, deserts, and mountains. It was right about then that a headline passed through my news feed. It said, bikepacking in North America just got a whole lot ratter. I guess I found my adventure. That's where it clicked for me is when I realized that I loved mountain biking and I loved camping and I could actually combine the two. I never thought it was possible to actually still have fun on a mountain bike, but have all my camping gear or still have fun camping without suffering with just carrying what I could carry on a mountain bike. This is Gabriel Tiller, executive director of the Oregon Timber Trail Alliance and one of the key co-conspirators in the trail's creation. It's a long distance backcountry mountain bike route that crosses the whole state of Oregon. The trail itself is 670 miles. It's about 70,000 feet of elevation gain. We suggest 20 to 30 days to ride the whole thing. We're finding most people do it in 15 to 20, but I like to play it safe and say 20 to 30. 670 miles to ride and think, or to not think at all, whatever. 
I would be crossing an incredible landscape. There was just enough front-end logistics to make it feel like an endeavor. I told Becca what I wanted to do, and I think she was pretty psyched that I hadn't come up with some totally ridiculous idea. We bought a bunch of maps. She helped me start figuring the logistics. I knew there was a lot I didn't know. Like, how much ground could I cover in a day? How hard would it be? How much food would I need exerting at that pace? I planned for what I could, and just figured I'd figure out the rest on the fly. The months snapped by, and pretty soon, August arrived. I scrambled to wrap up work. I'd organized a few boxes of food for Becca to ship to me along the way. I'd convinced my brother and my dad to drop me off at the trail's southern end, just south of the Oregon-California border. My brother was psyched to ride the first day with me, so I went through my pack list one last time. I tossed a few final items to the side. Rain jacket, didn't need it. Long sleeve shirt, away it goes. Tent, underwear, yeah, get rid of it all. What can I say? I was committed. It was time to hit pause. Describe the conditions, Walker. It's kind of smoky, uh, but there is some blue sky, and it's kind of hot, but it could be hotter, so I think we'll be okay. The smoke was bad. Fires in California were forcing people from their homes and covering Northern California and Oregon in thick smoke. The air quality warnings pleaded for people to stay indoors. Visibility was down to a few hundred yards. I was about to start pedaling miles and miles of undulating single track. I questioned my decision making, but I'd made a goal and I knew from experience that there is always a moment where the wisdom of said goal gets called into question. Usually that happens further along in the process and not the first day. The smoke is pretty damn bad. <laughs> I, I do not know whether this is the, uh, the right adult decision right now, but I figure I gotta try. Yeah, first day alone, we're gonna go for it. 27 miles the first day. The next morning, I wave goodbye to my dad and brother, 37 miles. The next day, 40 miles. There was a memorable bivy in an outhouse. Maybe I shouldn't have left that tent behind. But a night in a cramped, fairly clean outhouse was definitely preferable to being massacred by bugs after a few nights of no sleep. When cell coverage was good enough, I'd pull out my phone and send snippets of video to the boys. Hi guys! I love you! Look where I am. In a meadow. I slept in an outhouse. There you can see it. I slept in there. The mosquitoes were so bad. But there was a frog, which was pretty cool. In the first week, I saw only a single person, a fire lookout, perched atop the Fremont Range. On the window in front of us, with small arrows and a neat script and dry erase marker, he had penned in the names of the mountains surrounding the overlook. A wall of smoke stood in their place. I haven't seen anything in two weeks, he said, shaking his head with a slight chuckle. A few hours later, my nose started bleeding, and it wouldn't stop. I rode into the small Oregon desert town of Paisley and spent a night in a motel and the better part of a day resting beneath the shade of a bridge near a sweet little swimming hole until things chilled out with my body. Then I disappeared back into the smoke. Each day, I tucked my belongings in the various nooks and crannies of the bag nestled on my bike. I'd start early, 
and find shade through the middle of those hot August days. When the sun would drop enough to become bearable, I'd keep pedaling until about an hour before dark. While dinner rehydrated, I'd let the boys know where I was. Winter rim, Oregon Timber Trail. Look at that cabin. Eventually, I'd curl into my sleeping bag and think about the day and the day ahead until it all blurred together and sleep found me. Good morning. Hey guys. It was a pretty long night. Last night, I kept getting lost in the woods. Sorry, I couldn't call, guys. Um, but anyway, yeah. Sun is rising. I'm riding towards Chamolt, if you can find that on the map. And I've got some music in. Uh, Mary Clayton's Southern Man, the Neil Young cover. And Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones. You should listen to those. I love you guys. I miss you. Be good for mama, please. I was so cut out for this. I was so not cut out for this. That's what I hear when I re-listen to that audio. Belief and doubt. A couple hundred miles into the Oregon Timber Trail, that contradiction hit. I hear it in my voice, even if you don't. Those are the twin poles of my mind. In creativity, in outdoors, in business, in parenting, in life. Belief and doubt. Groove or rut. Belief or doubt. Things were going well. I was moving faster than I thought I would. While I'd hoped to have people join me on the trail, I was doing it alone. It was the most time I'd spent by myself since I traveled through Australia at 22 years old, 18 years earlier. And that morning, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be there. I missed Becca. I missed the boys. The smoke was ridiculous. I might as well be chain smoking. I knew I had to put music on. It's kind of like my performance enhancing drug. If I don't use it too much, I feel its power when I truly need it. And it worked. In the growing morning heat, I charged the last 30 miles into the highway town of Chamalt. I devoured two sandwiches at Subway and lounged beneath pines at the ranger station until the shadows grew long, and then I kept going. The sun set, and I pedaled down the dark forest roads with a meager beam of a headlamp until I pulled my bike between two RVs at Crescent Lake Campground and paid $15 for a campsite just so I could be around other people. When I asked the campground host if she could break my $20 bill, she threw in two Bud Lights and we called it good. I fell asleep listening to 80s hits cranking from an RV two spots down. It was a nice night. Damn, the riding was good. The trail was taking me places. I crossed over the Cascade Crest, dropped into the utterly remote middle fork of the Willamette River where dozens of springs poured from the hillside. I followed the river as it gathered strength down into the mountain biking mecca of Oak Ridge where the incredible people at the mountain bike store, Willamette Mercantile, styled me out. The next day, I tackled the crux of the whole ride. Bunchgrass Ridge. The epic. 
Up Bunch Grass Ridge through some of the most remote and beautiful stands of old growth I'd ever seen. FYI, you should definitely ride down that trail, not up it. 7,000 feet of climbing and almost 50 miles of riding later, I dove into the cold water of Waldo Lake. That night, I felt the first cool air of the Cascades and hunkered in my sleeping bag as I made dinner. Past Mount Bachelor, down into the Sisters, I followed the fresh tracks of a black bear over the horribly sandy slopes of Santiam Pass. The smoke rolled in and the bloody noses started again. Currently pushing the bike downhill. This nice sand, just like this. This is fun. It was the worst day of the trip and I wanted to quit, but I remember the old Appalachian Trail saying, never quit on a bad day. And so I kept going. I crested up onto the very ridge of the Cascades. I should have had an unparalleled perspective of all of Oregon's volcanoes, but smoke obscured everything. There was no view, yet I could see everything. I sent the boys a message. Hey guys, I'm standing on top of a mountain. I don't even know what it is, but there you can go. You can see, actually you can't see because it's too smoky. But you can see Mount Jeff, Sisters, Hood, Adams. Yeah, on a good day. Today was a good day, I guess. Just couldn't see anything. Love you guys. Here's my bike. I named it Wilson. What do you think? Good name? I started talking to him. I dove off the ridge for 4,000 feet of some of the best riding of the trip. I let the wheels leave the ground, the bags hitting the tires on the landing. I couldn't help myself. Sometimes you just gotta let it fly. Darkness fell, and I kept descending, laughing at the ridiculousness of it all, before I realized I was in the middle of nowhere without cell coverage, and that maybe a little doubt isn't such a bad thing when it comes to survival. I stopped as lightning illuminated the darkness. The trail eased, and one of my oldest friends, Aaron Webb, joined me for two days of riding. We laughed and caught up. Just got our first glimpse of Mount Hood. Webster! Ah! I ran into the first set of riders I'd encounter, Grant and Maria, and we shared an incredible evening of stories and beer we packed in. Mount Hood appeared through the smoke, and beyond that, the Columbia River. I was eight days ahead of schedule. The end was in sight. I followed the classic surveyor's ridge down into the quiet town of Parkdale. I stayed in our producer Jen Altschul's home and raided her fridge for beer while I watched the light disappear off the north side of Mount Hood from her back porch. The next morning, the smoke moved back. Hood was gone. I had ice cream for breakfast, because why not? And for the last big climb, I put the headphones in and started pedaling. Last climb. Last thousand feet up. Show you the view, but there's no view. We're in a cloud of smoke. The last climb was difficult. The caloric deficit finally caught up with me. My emotions spilled out. I felt each pedal stroke over and over, the same each time. 
Difficult today. Maybe easy tomorrow. I cried. I don't know why, but I did. Maybe that's just what happens when you've ridden a mountain bike at least 40 miles a day for 19 days. The hill ended, and I found my brother, Walker, in the woods atop Post Canyon near Hood River. He hugged me, and we descended five miles of berms and jumps, stopping to take stupid photos and laugh like we were little kids. I rode into Hood River, earbuds in, pumping my fist like a maniac. I put my front tire in the Columbia River and called it good. I had crossed Oregon. The next day, my brother dropped me at the train station in Portland, and I headed north. Seattle was filled with smoke when I pulled my bike off the baggage car. I rode through the hot streets and even joined the regular path I follow to commute home from work. It's pretty funny to just be doing your regular commute ride. Becca and the boys joined me at the park at the top of the big hill. Tip rode up on his new 10-speed. We hugged. Becca and I watched them play. And then they were hungry. Dinner needed to be made, dishes needed to be done, books read, bedtimes implemented. And so we pointed the bikes back down the hill and rode the last mile home as a family. It was wonderful. So I'm going to ask that question again. The groove in the, in the rut thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe they're the same thing. Maybe there's no difference. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, I've got my bike right in front of me right here, right? Here are the pedals. The pedals are attached to the crank arms. The crank arms are attached to the chain ring, which spins the chain, which spins the back tire. The whole thing is called the crank set, and it's what moves a bicycle through space and time. So think about those pedals. When I spin them this way, which way are they facing? This feels like a trick question. They're, they're up and down, or uh, 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock, or, or north and south. Opposites. When I turn them this way, now they're configured east and west, left and right. Belief and doubt. Belief and doubt, exactly. They are always in opposition no matter which way I spin them. Always at the other side of the circle from one another because it feels like, to me, it has to be that way. You couldn't ride a bike with a single pedal, or at least you couldn't ride well. You just wouldn't be able to balance right. You can't move the bike forward. There's nothing to pull it through its routine. And even if you were to think about changing the orientation so they weren't in exact opposites, like they were at 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock, it wouldn't even work then. The opposition is what creates a circular motion over and over. Right foot drives the pedal. Left foot drives the pedal. Right foot, left foot, doubt, belief. Call it a rut. Call it a groove. It doesn't matter. You need them both right. At any stage of life, we needed it when we were younger. We need it now. We will need it in the future. Belief and doubt move you forward. And if you just had belief I think you'd smack right into a tree, right? You couldn't balance, right? If you just had doubt, you'd never go anywhere. So 
maybe there's no difference between a groove and a rut. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, really, you can shred them both on a bike, right? (laughs) That's the reality. Thanks for letting me go find a little perspective. Thank you for letting me go. I love you. I love you too. Let's keep doing this. Keep pedaling. All of it. Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. Does your jacket need some TLC? Does a small tear in your favorite pants have you bumming? If it's broken, then fix it with the help of Patagonia's worn wear team. This winter, you can find Delia, the biodiesel repair wagon that stops across the US and Canada for free clothing repairs. Do-it-yourself repair tips and use Patagonia clothing. Worn wear, repair, trade, or buy it used. Support today also comes from Specialized Bikes. Thanks for supporting the show. They've got a newly redesigned Stump Jumper series on the markets, as well as a wide array of mountain bikes. Thank you so much. They ride great. Went 670 miles, and I didn't even have to change a flat. Check it out at Specialized.com. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks. With the mud season upon us, don't shove your dirty mountain bike into the back of your car. Go to KuatRacks.com and choose from their lineup of sturdy, easy-to-use, good-looking hitch racks and roof racks. Kuat, because you love your bike. And support also comes from Vossen Brewing, who just released their 2018 Imperial Walrus. The strong dark ale has rich multi flavors of dark chocolate and coffee. Stop by the Richmond Brewery for a goblet. Follow Vossen on Instagram or Facebook to learn more about their tasty beers and community events. We are back to regular releasing episodes of our Safety Third podcast. That's right, if you didn't know it, we have a whole other podcast. Host Patty O'Connell and Elizabeth Nakano talk with badass athletes and thinkers about their beliefs forged from adventure. The season kicked off with mountaineer Bam Mendiola, Natives Outdoors founder Len Nesifer, and big wave surfer Bianca Valenti. Find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Music today from Kesta, Kai Engel, Cloud9, Little Glass Men, Jacob Bain, Amy Stolzenbach, Ken Christensen, Jason Tyler Burton, and Published the Quest. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song, So Badass. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or the artists themselves. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was edited by Cordelia Zars and written by me, Fitzcahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer and badass co-creator. With Thanksgiving nearly upon us, and a heart full of gratitude, I want to say thank you to each one of you for tuning in to the Dirtbag Diaries. So deeply appreciated. We'll be back in two weeks. Pacific Northwest is where I take the deepest breaths. It's where the air is fresh, I can feel it in my soul. It's a good place to rest. It's where I call my home. It's where I'll raise my kids and where I'll die when I get home. More specifically, I'm living on an island in the sound. You gotta take a boat so it's protected by the moat. Just a hop and a skip from the city. It's a short trip. And to do a show, I get some lacquer for my captives. Stay long enough just to practice the fast pace. Then disappear back home from the rap race. Get in my breaths, taking our sunset. <laughs>